Hope everyone is doing well today. We are continuing what I didn't finish last week, and that is setting the stage for the book of Leviticus. But I guarantee we'll actually get into Leviticus today. Enough of the introduction. But I want to set the stage for the book of of Leviticus in the progression of thought through the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch. And so today we're going to look briefly at the theological development in the book of Exodus. How does that prepare for Leviticus? Well, remember last week we looked in Genesis, God is in sovereign control over the lives of those in one family who he chose to be his representatives uh, to glorify him in the world. And that would be Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and his descendants. But it's just one family. So we want to look now at Exodus. We're going to broaden it out to uh, one, from one family to a whole nation. And that is the, the children of, of uh, Jacob ended up being uh, turning into an entire nation as God led them to Egypt where they could develop and they would be protected from Canaanite influence. And they were living off in their own little part of Egypt in Goshen. And God knew that they would be safe there uh, from the evil influence of the Canaanite culture that back in Genesis, we saw, was already luring Judah into uh, idolatry and sin. And so a lot of the book of, of uh, Genesis, latter part of Genesis, and what we usually refer to as the uh, narrative concerning Joseph, is really Joseph is working towards the reconciliation of Judah to the family and especially to the Lord. All right, so now we're making this transition. Exodus reveals, we've already seen for the last couple of years, that uh, there are three means that God intends for mankind to know him. Deliverance from Egypt, from Egyptian bondage of slavery. Number two, the law that he graciously gave Israel on Mount Sinai. And number three, God's personal presence. And so, so much of the latter part of the book of Exodus deals with instructions about the tabernacle. The word tabernacle comes from a Hebrew verb, to dwell. And so, uh, that's the verb shakan. And you add a mame on the front, and you get mishkan. That's the place of dwelling. And so, that is what the tabernacle is. It is the place of God's dwelling personally among his people. And it is that personal presence that the book of Exodus is setting us up for to anticipate in Leviticus. All right? How can God dwell with his people who were what? All 100% obedient all the time, right? No. We have in, in uh, Exodus the saddest chapters, three chapters. 
chapters 32 through 34. And this is the golden calf incident. After all the emphasis on Mount Sinai, on avoid idolatry, the Lord is saying, the one thing I can't stand more than anything else is unfaithfulness in my people. I want you to be devoted entirely to me. I'm zealous about that. That's the most important thing, that you love, love me and me alone. Okay? So, that then is uh, the way Exodus is closing as, as Israel uh, constructs this wonderful dwelling of God in, right among his own people. But although we get to the end of the book and we find that God's glory, in fact, does fill the tabernacle, that's the last part of, verse, of chapter 40, but there's a problem. Anybody know the problem? Well, here it is. As Exodus ends, we see a magnificent tabernacle full of pure gold, at least in the, in the holy, holiest place, the Holy of Holies. That's the Hebrew way of saying the holiest place. Here is this, everything is beautiful, gold and tapestries woven by spirit-empowered craftsmen. It's, it's like the throne room of any ancient Near Eastern monarch, only more glorious. And, and now, this tabernacle that's constructed, what? Exactly as God told Moses to build it when he was up standing in God's presence on the top of Mount Sinai, the only one who was able to stand in God's presence there, and we've, we've already seen that uh, Moses stood in God's presence at the burning bush when Yahweh up, up, appeared directly to him and said, take off your sandals, you're standing on holy ground. And there was this bush blazing with fire. That's always the, the picture that God gave to his people. I am a consuming fire. And the author of Hebrews confirms that when he says our God is a God of consuming fire. And then throughout Moses' ministry, he would receive direct communication from the Lord, and then he uh, did everything he did at the Lord's direction. He stands before the Lord on the top of Mount Sinai, the typical Israelite was scared senseless by an even veiled view, God's glory hidden in the dark cloud that settled down on the top of Mount Sinai. So the typical Israelite was, was scared senseless when he heard uh, the thunder, the lightnings. Well, you don't hear lightnings, but the lightning and the thunder and the earthquake, and the, the radiant veiled glory of God's presence, 
And Moses was the only one qualified to go all the way up to the top of the mountain. Now remember, there was a time when Moses and Aaron and the 70 elders went halfway up the mountain, but that's as far as they could go. Moses, throughout the book, has been privileged to be the sole intercessor or mediator between God and his people. He alone has been, has been allowed to be in God's glorious presence. And yet we get to the end of the book, how can sinful mankind approach the holy God who will dwell in the tabernacle? Right at the end, we have one statement that leaves us mystified. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of Yahweh filled the tabernacle. And notice this. Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it, and the glory of Yahweh filled the tabernacle. There are two words that describe the tabernacle. We've already mentioned the first one, Mishkan, the place of dwelling. The second one was the phrase, the tent of meeting, implying not only does God dwell in this tabernacle, but this is a place of his meeting with God and man. You know, in order for somebody to really know someone else, there has to be, at some point, an actual meeting with that person. Perhaps some of you met your wife or your husband uh, in, on an online dating service. So, I, I know, I can think of somebody in our church here, and they met at, at, on an online dating service, even though they were in the same class, graduating class, at Bob Jones University. They never knew each other. Years went by. They go on the dating service. Guess what? The, the computer matches them up as a, as a good match. Oh, yeah, you, you share very, very, uh, you know, what you would call not very common things you hold to. And now look. There you are, two people, you even graduated from the same school that believes all these things that you hold to. And uh, so they, they ended up uh, corresponding. But you know, you can just go so far in a relationship, corresponding by email or by calling each other or by letters. Now there's an old-fashioned thing, letters. Uh, the summer before my wife and I were married, we wrote letters back and forth to each other. Why? Because long-distance phone calls were very expensive. And so very, you know, every once in a while, how often did we call each other? Once a, once a month? Well, it wasn't very often. Not often enough for me, but anyway. Um, you've got to get to a point where, in order to really know somebody, you actually are with them, okay? And so <clears throat> that's what God is doing here. He is dwelling among his people so that they might know him 
to the highest degree possible for a sinful man to know the holy God. But why is it Moses was not able, (coughs) excuse me, not able to enter the tent? Anybody have any idea? Why could Moses have stood before the Lord on the top of Mount Sinai, but now he can't enter the tabernacle because the glory of the Lord fills it? Ever stop to think about that? So think about that. Anybody got any idea? I've been thinking about it for a while now, and I'm coming up with difficulty explaining this. Let's see if anybody here in the class can come up with an idea. Okay, Debbie. Okay, there was no doubt some aspect of God's veiling his glory on the top of Mount Sinai. We know this because just what Pastor mentioned today in Exodus 32 and 33, uh, the Lord tells Moses, no one can see a full revelation of my glory and live. And so when the Lord does uh, declare his name to Moses, he hides them, he hides them in the cleft of the rock, covers him with his hand, passes by, declares the name of Yahweh, and Moses doesn't get a full revelation of God's glory. But what I mean, standing in the Holy of Holies, or standing anywhere in the temple, for that matter, when God first filled it, would have been to expose whoever was standing there to a full, unveiled revelation of his, or, or exposure of his full glory. That's, that's a good answer. I think that's probably uh, going towards what we should understand. All right, so what I'm arguing here now is that we have this question going into the book of Leviticus. And so we're going to go there now. And uh, we're going to see the purpose and theme of Leviticus. How can God dwell with his sinful people and not destroy them? Not even Moses himself could enter the tabernacle. So the book of Leviticus is going to answer this question for us. How is it God can dwell in the midst of his sinful people? Ones that are prone to do things like they did in Exodus 30, 32 through 34 when they, had, when they worshiped the golden calf. There's got to be an answer to how God doesn't dwell with them without wiping them out. Do you remember when Moses interceded for Israel in the aftermath of the golden calf incident? What did the Lord tell Moses he was going to do? You know, I've decided, Moses, I'm just going to wipe out everybody except for you. And I'll start over with a new Israel. It'll be your descendants. Was that just an idle threat? What do you think? No, that was not an idle threat. How did Moses respond? Lord, people are going to think that you couldn't 
You couldn't sustain your people. You led them out into the wilderness simply to obliterate them. That's not going to reflect well on you. And then Moses says the most amazing thing. If you will not forgive their sin, then go ahead and blot me out of the book. The book of life. Moses is saying, I don't want to live any longer. I don't want any hope of eternal life unless you forgive your people. Wow! And so the Lord says, okay, I won't obliterate them, but there needs to be a means in place so that I can instruct them about how to to live in light of the fact that I dwell right in the midst of my people, Israel. All right, so what is that going to be? The theme of Leviticus is this. Holiness is essential for being in God's presence, for fellowshipping with him, for being in a state that I'm not going to be obliterated Otherwise, we'd have no hope when we get to the end of the book of Exodus that this would even be possible. All right, so now we're going to switch to the book of Leviticus. And we're going to see, first of all, God can dwell with mankind only through sacrifice. Sacrifice for sin. And this is going to take up the first ten chapters of the book of Leviticus. There's going to be, in these first ten chapters, an episode that is something like the golden calf incident. We see the importance of doing everything exactly as the Lord has prescribed. Won't do for people to come up with their own idea about how they want to do sacrifice. Who is it? What pair of priests decided they were going to come up with their own ideas about how to sacrifice to the Lord? Nadab and Abihu. And we're not even sure what they did. They offered strange fire before the Lord. And what did the Lord do with them? Fire came out from the Lord and incinerated them. Well, there must have been something left of them because the text tells us that they were buried still in their priestly garments. So I guess they weren't totally, you know, didn't just go poof and get turned into smoke. But uh, there was, it was an awesome event. Completely awesome And so, this is the way we're looking at things. The instructions for how to offer sacrifice to this holy God are very exacting. Very exacting. 
we'll have application of that as we go through. Okay, so let's start in on the first 10 chapters of uh, Leviticus. Turn, if you would, please, to Leviticus 1. And we're going to look, first of all, at what I call the ascension sacrifice. All right, let me get my slower than molasses iPad to cooperate with me. All right, here we go, finally. Leviticus chapter 1. Notice, the Lord called Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting. Notice it's called here not the the tabernacle, but the tent of meeting, emphasizing God's closeness to his people, and especially to Moses. So, the Lord says, speak to the people of Israel and say to them, when any one of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of livestock from the herd or the flock. Uh, Okay, so... You, the, the individual who has sinned or who just wishes to praise the Lord for something makes a selection uh, in the case of the what's called the burnt offering here, makes a selection from animals he owns. They, it just can't be any animal. Uh, let's say he's got a... Um, a sheep, and it's lame, <clears throat> and it's half blind, and it's really not a very good sheep, and he decides, well, I'll get rid of that one. Uh, it's not a very good sheep anyway, and I'll, that's the one I'll sacrifice to the Lord. Oh, no. No, that has to be, as we learn in the book of Exodus, or Leviticus, excuse me, that has to be a tamim animal. And that Hebrew word refers to something that has no blemish. It's a perfect example. It's, how many of you like to watch the Westminster dog show on TV? Oh, man, I love to watch dog shows. The, there are so, you look at all the different kinds of dogs there are. There are little chihuahuas. There are Bernese mountain dogs or... You know, with the, those big white ones, what are they called? Great Pyrenees. Uh, I mean, they go from small to little, uh, to big. They go from, you know, no hair hardly at all to enough hair for ten, ten dogs. Uh, <clears throat> some of them, I don't even know how they see out of their eyes. Some of these, like, sheep dogs, you know, that hangs down over their eyes. You'd think they'd run into things. Uh, an amazing variety, just absolutely amazing. And the one that wins the best in show, don't ask me how they choose these ones, but they're the most perfect example of that breed of any dog the guy has seen for the whole show, and uh, that's the perfect one. What if he were to go to... Uh, the owner of that dog, after the show is over, and say, we'd like you to sacrifice this dog on an altar. 
Uh, are you on board with that? Well, what's the person going to say? Are you kidding? I'm going to make a lot of money off this dog. <laughs> and I, it, it's, a, it's now the championship bloodline. And I'm going to make tens of thousands of dollars off of breeding this dog. And I, I don't want to get rid of it, kill it, sacrifice it. It's, it's uh, perfect. Well, that's the kind of animal that the Lord is saying, you're going you're gonna to look out for this animal. You're going to very carefully select it to be the highest representative of any animal in your flock. All right, so that's what verse 3 reinforces. The sacrifice that we're talking about here that's translated by the SV, burnt offering, is from a Hebrew verb to go up. Ngalah. And the sacrifice itself is called the ngolah. It just means something that ascends. It goes up. Well, of course, why is it going up? Because it's being burned. So I guess that's why most people call it the burnt offering. I'll call it the ascension offering. Because the idea is that this is going up to heaven. This is going to be uh, a very important offering, and that's why it's, it's described first in the book of Leviticus. This is the means by which God can dwell with his people Israel, and they are not consumed. So, verse 3 says, if his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, in other words, what kind of animals are uh, in the herd? Well, there are big ones, like a bull or maybe an ox. I mean, these, these things are big and they're worth a lot of money. Now, later on in the chapter, we're going to find out that there is another class of possible uh, ascension offerings, and these are animals from the flock, like sheep and goats. They're not nearly as big as the herd animals, but they qualify. And then right at the end of the chapter, we learn the third class of acceptable uh, animals for the, the ascension offering is birds. Okay, so, and there are instructions how to offer birds. Now, why would there be three categories of acceptable burnt offerings, do you suppose? So I say what? Yeah, the economic status of the family. Not everybody could even afford to own a bull or an ox. And they sure couldn't afford, it would just bankrupt them, ruin them to, if they could get possession of such a thing, to uh, just have it uh, be a, a burnt offering. Okay? So, in that case, maybe they can afford a goat or a sheep. And maybe they're so poor, they can't even afford that. But surely, anybody could 
uh, own a bird or trap a bird and, uh, and offer it. And so no one is left out of this category of offering. Anyone can afford to do this. The same way uh, in the church today, the, the group of God's believers. Here at Cornerstone, there are some people who can give huge amounts of money because they earn huge amounts of money. And then there are people who are more middle-class individuals. They earn a decent living, but they have to watch their finances very carefully. And so they're included in this. And then there are people who don't make much at all, but they're not exempt from bringing offering to the Lord because it's an expression of their devotion to Christ and their their, uh, love of him, a response to God's amazing grace that saved them. And now, out of hearts of gratitude, no matter what the level of economic achievement in life, they all bring what they can. Can anybody think of a parable the Lord told that illustrates this concept? How about the widow with one small copper coin that was all she had to live on, and after our Savior had stood at the, tab- at the temple and watched what people were bringing and contributing. And the wealthy people would come with their pomp and their circumstance to be seen of men, and they would put in huge amounts of money, and everybody would, would exclaim, oh, wow, look at that. That guy just put a million bucks in the offering. Well, I don't know, the equivalent maybe of a million. And then he watches all these people making a big show of it, and then along comes this this widow. And hardly with anybody seeing it, she takes that little coin out of her pocket, puts it in the offering. And what did the Lord say about that widow? Her sacrifice was the greatest. She didn't give out of her surplus. She gave out of her out of her poverty. She couldn't really even afford to do that, but she did it out of love for the Lord. Wasn't out for show. Indeed, the burnt offering, the the ascension offering, the one that goes up in smoke, this is something that everybody can participate in. All right, so, first of all, there's five steps to this offering. The first one is the presentation of the animal. Go to Leviticus 22, 17 through 28. It tells us that these defects must never be in the ascension offering. You can't have an animal that's in any way got imperfection. Can't be lame, can't be blind. It can't have any number of physical deformities, all right? 
So this is the kind of, of animal that is essential. If his offering is a burnt offering from the field, he shall offer a male without blemish. He shall bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting that it may be accepted before the Lord. Who would meet the offerer at the the entrance to the temple or to the tabernacle? There at the entrance, what's the one thing, well, what's the nearest thing to the entrance of the uh, tabernacle? It's a bronze altar. It's made of wood over, overlaid with bronze. The exact dimensions of it are given in Exodus. There is to be fire in that, on that altar burning all the time. But who's going to meet the offerer and inspect his animal? One of the priests. Okay? And if this person thinks he can get away with something, he's not going to get past the gaze of the priest. He's going to make sure, yes, this is a perfect representative of a sheep or a bull or a goat or even the birds that he's presenting as an offering. All right, so notice this statement that he may be accepted before the Lord. There you have it. That's the purpose of this ascension offering. People realized, I have to approach God in the way he specifies. And this is going to be costly for me. Remember when uh, David was um, offering one of these kind of offerings after he had numbered Israel and the Lord, basically an element of pride on David's part. And then the Lord said, okay, I'll tell you what, would you like there to be pestilence or would you like to fall under the hand of your enemy or would you like me to pick uh, your your, uh, judgment here? And, and you, so what does David say? Well, I want to fall into your hand, Lord. You'll be gracious. Uh, so I'm, I'm committing this to you. And so the Lord goes out. How many people died in that, in that event of judgment? Was it 70,000? So then the Lord stays the hand of the angel of the Lord, and he doesn't kill anymore. And David goes up and there is a threshing floor owned by Arana. And he buys it from him, the place ultimately where the the temple will be built. And he offers an ascension offering. Uh, Why does he do that? Because he is confessing his sin He wants to be restored to fellowship with the Lord. And there are two other places of great significance in Genesis where this kind of offering is is made. 
The first one is after the flood. Noah exits the ark. What's the first thing he does? He builds an altar and he, he offers an ascension offering. After this great sin, now the earth is purged by the waters of the flood. And now Noah is telling the Lord, Lord, I want to be accepted before you. I'm coming to you according to your terms. Even back then, they understood the importance of this offering. Next, remember when the Lord told Abraham, Abraham, I want you to go up to to Mount Moriah, and I want you to sacrifice your only son, Isaac. As a what? A burnt offering, an ascension offering. How much of the, of the offering did a person retain after the offering was complete? The answer is zip. He, it was all burned up. He had nothing left. And Isaac is the most precious thing in the world to Abraham. And yet, we read of absolutely no hesitation on Abraham's part to go up to the mountain. As a matter of fact, you know what he tells the servants before they go up? He says, the lad and I will go up the mountain we shall worship, and we shall return to you. Third, per, uh, first person plural pro, uh, pronouns all the way through that verse. What do you conclude from that? Well, I, uh, somehow Abraham knew that if he went through with this, that God could raise him from the dead. And the book of, in the book of Hebrews, the author of Hebrews, tells us that very thing. Do you talk about faith? That's incredible. Abraham had never seen the Lord bring anybody back from the dead. How could he think something that had been completely burned up, some person completely burned up could be restored to life? He had implicit trust. And this was very, very costly for Abraham. In effect, he would reason, okay now, the Lord told me that he was going to continue my lineage of blessing, the lineage that he had promised uh, when I entered into an unconditional covenant with him, that he was going to Bless my descendants through Isaac. And so, if he requires me to to give him as an ascension offering, then it must be that he's going to raise him from the dead. That's amazing, implicit faith of the costliest sacrifice you can even imagine. All right, if the priest said yes, This is an unblemished animal. Next, it would be the stage of of leaning on the animal's head. 
the verb here that says in verse 4, he shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering. That verb lay is not just, you know, put it on the, the head with very light pressure. It's put most of your weight on uh, the animal's head. Make the head bow down. And uh, note that verse 4 includes the first uh, mention of the key word to make atonement. All right, we'll, we'll talk about this next week because we have to uh, close here. All right, any questions, comments at this point? Great, let's pray. Our Father, we're thankful for uh, the word that you have given to us, for our instruction, for our, our blessing. We glorify you and thank you that you desire to dwell with those who know you. You desire intimate fellowship and communion. Help us to praise you throughout the week, every single day, for your desire to be close with us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.